0: Excuse me, Dave, can you just pop into the broom cupboard for five minutes with this penthouse magazine and this little test tube? Hey, Michelle. Hello. Oh. <laughs> A low monotone from Michelle. G'day. G'day. Have you become Australian? Yeah, that's all I do here. G'day. Here you go. On. G'day, mate.
1: <laughs> Good-I <day>, mate. <laughs> I think that's a little too enunciated. Mate Good I mate. How's it hanging? Oh yeah, and I've heard some great swearing lately. I I, I had a clanger. Oh, did someone drop a clanger? They dropped a bloody clanger. We were talking about this person and and, and my friend said, um, oh he's as cunning as a shit ass rat. What? Oh, no I've never heard that before. Honestly, a shit I house
0: rat, like a shit a rat. Ah, oh. yep.
1: Oh. Cunning as a shit house rat. So wow. there you go.
0: I'm learning new new swearies. Look, welcome people to the eavesdropping podcast. <laughs> I feel that I should just, for those listeners who may have just joined us, yes, this is a podcast. You are currently eavesdropping on me, Geordie, and that's her, Michelle. Now, Michelle, normally we do this in two countries. I'm usually in the United Kingdom, Greater London, in fact. Michelle's normally in the Swiss Alps, but today Michelle is in...
1: Australia, yay!
0: Australia. And you're actually in... The city of Melbourne, aren't you?
1: Yes, I am for this one. I'm in in Melb's, and it's rainy and humid. So there you go. Australia is not always
0: so. Sunshine. Blow up that, blow up that preconception to all the UK and whatever listeners out there that think it's always just so hot and it's great. But you know what is not great about being hot in a in a country like Australia is that usually you have a fly going in your mouth, coming back out your nose, or all of the flies, like all of them, on your back when you're wearing a white T-shirt and you're walking to the shops and you don't know they're there. Or you're getting swooped by a Maggie. A.K.A. a magpie. Yep, swooped by a Maggie. So you're wearing a, an ice cream bucket or bucket on your head so that during nesting season...
1: With eyes drawn on the tops. Why do you put eyes? Because then the magpie thinks you're looking at them And they want to kill you. Well, no, they want to kill you less because they think...
0: I've got eyes on you, bird. Exactly, but obviously you're
1: too terrified and you're just running.
0: You're running and screaming on your way to the bus stop. Mum, don't make me. Mum, can you drive me to the end of the road so I can get the school bus? No, darling, take the ice cream bucket and put some eyes on top. That's what she'll say. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I did have some response from Terence Whittaker. I don't know if I should have used his entire name, but I have. I've dropped him in it. He's an eavesdropper, our friend Terry. Mm -hmm. He loved my interpretation a few weeks ago of the Australian bird life compared to the UK and England bird life. The soft dulcet tweets compared to the yacking of the kookaburra and other. Y- you hit me. There's one bird that sounds like that. Have you heard it yet, Michelle? You hit me. <laughs>
1: they all. Have you heard? That they one? all sound like that. Honestly, I was pissing myself when you when you did it the first time. You're very good with the Aussies. Jeffrey,
0: <laughs> There is a bird that says Jeffrey. I'm sure of it. I haven't heard that one yet. Will you do me a favour, Michelle? Mm. Yeah, will you be record some? Record some bird song oh. while you're there.
1: I've already done it. I've recorded yes. it. Maybe we might even put it over on Patreon for okay. anyone who's feeling nostalgic and wants a little bit of...
0: You can go ahead and pay a dollar or two and you can have access to that exciting content. Patreon, that's right, we have a Patreon page, don't we?
1: We do and, you know, we're thrilled when anybody signs up. You know, your support helps keep us going to do all the wonderful eavesdropping biz
0: niz that you love. Right. What is that business, Michelle? Business. What is that? Talking. Talking shit. (laughs) Talking. You lovely Patreon supporters are assisting us in continuing to talk some more shit. And we give you extra shit to listen to on Patreon. <laughs> so go and sign up. That's www.patreon forward slash eavesdropping no G. Right?
1: That is right. There's a dot com in there, but you'll figure it out. So I just wanted to give a couple of little shout outs. Just wanted to say happy birthday. To our part-time researcher, Al (gasps) Teggett.
0: Happy birthday, Al Teggett. Another researcher has had quite a a massive birthday, actually. Our researcher who pointed out that we're in the top 10%, but now we're in the top 5% of globally listened to podcasts. That's Anna from France.
1: And I even think we may have had... A birthday from our modern mystic, Tamira.
0: Yes, we did. All of our researchers are getting together and having a birthday party. It's a bumper birthday week. Happy birthday, Tamira. Happy birthday, Al Teggett. He's not a unicorn. And happy birthday, Anna from France.
1: And I want to give a little shout out to Neil, the scientist who I actually met up with and had lunch with whilst in
0: melbourne michelle can i ask did he did he debunk anything for you because you've come out with some fast and loose and wild ideas about the way the world might work you know science and other things has he has he taken you to one side and sat you down and said well michelle let me just tell you
1: no he's very polite uh (laughs) he lets me he lets me go on my merry way however He does do this thing where he gets the worst, most shittest powdered coffee and, you know, instant just adds water and Mm -hmm. then he puts cream in. He videos it on his phone. What? And yeah, he like takes, he makes a video of this cream coming to the surface. Today, whilst doing that, he talked about the, he was like, oh, it looks a bit James Webb, James Webb telescope. So that's what Neil the Scientist does. He talks Uh. science... Even when he's making a
0: coffee. So shout out. Shout out to you, Neil. And no shade for the coffee that you drink, by the way. Michelle was very scathing just now about your particular brand. But let's not judge people on their coffee, Michelle.
1: Well, do you know what? I did say to him, that's shit. I don't even drink coffee. But I said to him, hey, so is that actually nice? And he went, nah, it's fucking awful. Well, why is he drinking it? To look at it. Yeah, the visual of the cream in the coffee. Neil the Scientist, that's how he he passes the time. Neil the Scientist. Neil, Neil, he's real. Neil the Scientist. Neil,
0: he's a scientist. Neil. Orange peel. He blinded us with science. You know, last week was uh, real life. We talked about Elvis, did he die in 1977? I would say better Bets are off about whether he's dead or not now because he'd be about 85 and his diet wasn't great. So even if he didn't die in 1977, I'm sure it wasn't too much later that he did die. There was that, there was Bohemian Grove, there was your insane story about the creepy dad who came to move in with uh, all the students and ended up forming a sex cult. I wonder what his daughter thought of all that, by the way. What was his name? Larry Ray.
1: Larry Ray and his daughter, Talia, and she was completely brainwashed. So she really believed that her dad was amazing and that he was being hounded and persecuted by the FBI, by the American government, by, you know, the officials of of New York. So she was his biggest advocate So when he wanted to move in, she was like, amazing. Oh, my dad's great. And he convinced them all that he was great. But listen, anyone who missed that, go back to last week's episode. Have a listen. It's definitely going to
0: blow your little minds about just how creepy people can be. And we talk about Bohemian Grove as well, which is that secret society. Very interesting, if I do say so myself. But this (laughs) week, Michelle, because what we're trying to do, listeners, dear listeners, is we are going on a rotating Basis from real life, true crime, supernatural, and I think this week, Michelle, you might have a nice true crime story for me. Do you?
1: Yes, I do. And look, this actually all came about. I mean, I had actually investigated another true crime story, and then I had my mind blown by a show I saw
0: on Netflix. Netflix, as my kids call it. Netflix.
1: (laughs) I've got a Netflix. No, it's called
0: Our Father,
1: which I didn't really know anything about. Have you heard about it? No, no. Okay. It's, um, it's actually quite difficult to categorize this as a true crime story, actually, because technically, according to the show, no crime has actually been committed. Okay. Honestly, it fucking has because it's really, really shocking. So, trigger warning... All right. The following story might upset people who are adopted.
0: Oh, that's me.
1: Yeah, sorry. Sorry babe. Just just trigger trigger if you have fertility issues or uh-huh. if you have been conceived from a sperm donor, this might be the moment to turn off.
0: Don't you turn off. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. I'll see you next week. I'll leave Michelle to it. Bye.
1: Keep my names dropping. Yeah. So if you think this might not be for you, yeah, switch off. Or if you want to watch the show without any spoilers, see you next week. See you next Tuesday. Trigger warned. So I'm just going to start with the main person in the documentary, which is a woman called
0: Jacoba Ballard. Jacoba? Is that like the female version of Jacob?
1: I imagine so, but to me it sounds really fucking made up. But anyway, she was the only kid in her family that had blonde hair and blue eyes. And she had a feeling from really early on that she just didn't fit in this family and she could have been adopted so, she, you know, she kept kind of pecking at her parents like, oh, why do I look different? Am I adopted? Mm. Blah, blah. And when she was 10 years old, her parents told her that they had used a sperm donor to conceive her. They'd gone to the best fertility doctor in the state. Not only did he have like the best reputation, he was like a devout Christian. He was a church elder, a respected member of the community. He had the best fertility rates out of anyone and he used the live sperm because we're going back to the 70s and 80s here
0: when the whole like freezing sperm wasn't really a thing it had to be live sperm what hang on wait I just need to get my head around this though Michelle how does that happen do you they run through the corridors with a little hot pot or is it pretty much in the room at the same time
1: no, it's pretty much a hot pot. And actually in the documentary, one of the nurses would say we would get the live sperm. What they were using were the medical students what? who were working in the hospital. So they
0: would be donating. So, Excuse me, Dave, can you just pop into the broom cupboard for five minutes with this penthouse magazine and this little test tube? <laughs> Come right back. No, no, nothing to worry about. No, no one's going to come knocking on your door in 18 years with a paternity suit. <laughs> Bloody hell. Do you know
1: what? It was kind of the wild west back then. What year is this again? Early 70s oh, yeah, and course, 80s. Yeah. Right. And, you know, it's not like it is now where you get like a little online scrolly booklet on your iPad where you can go through all these beautiful Norwegian donors who, <laughs> you know, oh, blonde hair and blue eyes and they're a medical student. I mean... You know, these were medical students, but these women at the time, it was such a new procedure that I think were just like, oh, yes, doctor, you know, we'll trust you to match us with somebody that looks like my husband. So there was a lot of trust here. And he was using medical students to get this sperm. And like I said, there was this woman who was the receptionist and she was saying she would get the sperm and it had to stay at room temperature so she'd pop it in a bra so it was okay. next to her skin yeah. so you know there weren't there weren't any health and safety issues a different type of pearl necklace <laughs> oh god <laughs> we
0: have to make these jokes Michelle we have to
1: otherwise it's just fucking grim so yes <laughs> on, my tits.
0: So Blimey, she went there.
1: It was working because this guy had the best success rate for artificial insemination in not only the state, but he was renowned all over the United States. Sorry, this is happening in the United States. Gotcha. And Jacoba's parents desperately wanted another child, but it wasn't happening. So they went ahead with the artificial insemination and boom. Nine months later, Jacoba was born. Right. But jacoba always wanted to know if she had blood brothers and sisters and Mm. she knew that with a donor sperm there could be up to three children conceived from any one donor because that's the limit. I thought you were going
0: to say way more.
1: No, because apparently for every one donor, three is the limit because then it gets a bit tricky, you know.
0: with The old gene pool.
1: The gene pool. You don't want to end up, you know, accidentally having sex with your brother. So, you know, all of that stuff. Got it. So, she was like, look, I could have two siblings out there. So, in 2014 at the age of 35, she did a 23andMe DNA test. And look, before we actually like move further into the story, I want to talk about 23andMe because I remember when it came out and it blew up in America and loads of my, my friends in America were doing it. What it is, It's basically a genetics test and it seemed like a fun thing to do and there was loads of marketing around it at the time that advertised kind of stupid things like, you know, oh, find out whether you have the gene where you can smell
0: asparagus in your wee or why you have dry earwax. Huh? I thought it was some people can roll their tongues and others can't. That All of that kind of stuff. And they were coming up with all these fun things. That's important to know. Well,
1: (laughs) I mean, I think it just got people sort of like excited about wanting to do it. It was just an easy way to get cheap genetic testing because you just spat into a sample vial, you sent it in and the company would analyze your DNA in Mm -hmm. really minute detail. And look, they were actually the first company to invent the spit DNA test rather than providing a blood sample so the company would analyze it they would give you back a report that gave you like genetic ancestry information about who you're related to if those people had also done a 23andMe test so their database was limited only to other people who were doing 23andMe and also aside from like the the weird like asparagus in your wee and whatever, it could tell you, and this is what I think people really got excited and a little bit freaked out about, was it could tell you whether or not you had any, like, predispositions to health conditions. Cancers,
0: like the BMRC gene, all of that.
1: Diabetes, you know, Uh everything, everything.
0: And if you're adopted, you want to know those things. Like, this is the main reason that my mother had an idea that my brother and I ought to find out who our biological family were so that we could find these things out health conditions yeah and
1: so this really revolutionary test could tell you that it's quite a compelling thing to do because not only would you find out whether you had any like secret siblings it would also tell you what you had a predisposition to which could then actually give you a warning of do I need to go and get tests? Do I need to change my lifestyle and my diet? Do I need a little
0: doggy to come and sniff me and see what I've got? It's almost like that, isn't it? We talked about that it a few really weeks ago. It really is. It
1: is. Instead of having like a dog, dog sniffing your ass because you've mm-hmm. got cancer. Why would it be up the ass? Don't know because dogs love it up the ass. But What? <laughs> I mean I a chill. sniff. A sniff. A sniff. Sniff, sniff. God. Gosh, I know. Sorry. So look, the thing was… This was like a really great thing. It was marketed as a bit of fun, but you also got some really interesting information. Except the company was initially funded back in 2007 by Google, uh-huh. mainly because the woman who founded the company was a woman called Anne Wojcicki. And Mm -hmm. she was married at the time to Sergi Brin, who was the co-founder of Google. So, I guess it makes sense that if you're going to have a company and your husband owns Google, you're going to say, mate, can you just give me a few mil to like start this company? So, that was fine. But over the years, it's been funded by and partnered with big pharma companies. So, it's not really surprising to put two and two together and realise that the company isn't making money from the 99 bucks or whatever it costs to take mm. the 23andMe test and that it's not primarily a company dedicated to providing, you know, people with a tool for medical prevention and medical information. But what they do is they make money by selling your data. You hate that, don't you? But you've given your DNA away.
0: Yeah, what would they do with that and make a replica of you and force you to go and assassinate the queen or something?
1: It's more that, look, not even the police have your DNA. Like, no one has your DNA unless you give it away. And what these people were doing was information gathering. Basically, they want to know what your medical history is, on one hand, for medical research purposes, but also so they can medically market to you sell you products and services life insurance medications and just last year for 3.5 billion Richard Branson bought the company so make of that what you will because this is all about data collection
0: You hate that. We've spoken about privacy laws before, and you absolutely hate that. But what I will say is because of 23andMe and all of those other data collection DNA services, they were able to catch a bunch of serial killers, you know, a lot of crimes that the perpetrators may have never been found have been through familial dna matches and that's usually through companies like 23andme through maybe the green river killer going and having and it wasn't the green river killer what was the guy called it was the night not the night stalker who was he It was the golden state killer golden state killer they found him that way because one of his nephews did one of these dna tests
1: yeah it was ancestry.com or something wasn't it But, look, I'm not saying that they are completely evil. I'm just saying they're a little bit evil because, you know, of course there are benefits to this, but you've got to understand they're not doing this for
0: free. Well, you get annoying ads. For free. Yeah. Okay. Of course, no one does. No one does anything for free, do they? Not even we do anymore. Patreon.
1: Uh, Look, I have a Gmail and, you know, I feel a bit stupid. I gave away every single bit of information that's ever passed through my Gmail. Google has it all. But anyway, this is not what this episode is about. This episode is about the Netflix documentary, Our Father. So, when Jacoba did her 23andMe test, it came back that she had not two half-siblings like she'd hoped, but seven. Oh, dear. And they all lived within a 25-mile radius of her home. That
0: Dave, he kept going back to the broom cupboard, didn't he, with his penthouse <laughs> magazine.
1: Come on, just knock one more out, Dave. Just one more. <laughs> but look, I mean, she was absolutely over the moon when she realised, like, oh, my God, I've got blood relatives. But once that excitement sort of died down a little bit, mm. she was like, fuck. How is this possible that I have seven half-siblings if no donor is meant to be allowed to have more than three children spawned from their donor sperm? And she's like, this just doesn't fucking add up. So she started digging. Through her digging, she found out that Donald Klein, who was the doctor who had artificially inseminated her mother had used one donor at least eight times with the half-siblings, being born between 1979 and 1986. And when she thought about this, she's like, well, that's too long a time frame for this to be from one medical student because no one student stays for that long in one place. Yes. Yes. And, you know, because they were kind of meant to be these medical interns who were, like, coming and going, you know, from Mm. all over the country doing their internship at the hospital. So she did some more digging. And over the next eight years, she found 94 half-siblings.
0: Oh, someone's having a bit of fun, aren't they? Yeah. It's like the boys from Brazil. Yeah. Yeah. Donald Klein. Oh, Donald, you dirty bugger.
1: I know. And look, you know, basically these desperate women who were just longing for a baby, they would come in, he'd pop them in the stirrups, make them wait for 20 minutes while he went into another room, (laughs) jerked off, knocked one out, and then came back with a hot shot of sperm and inseminated these women. And look, in the documentary, Jacoba says, and, and these are her words, What made him every day wake up and decide to go into work, masturbate and place it unknowingly inside women without their consent? He could have stopped at any point, but he kept doing it over and over. And look, horrifyingly, there was another woman in the documentary who, when she learned that her son had Donald Klein's DNA and not her husband's, she said, and these are her words... I was raped 15 times and I didn't even know it. 15. Why does she say 15? Cuz she'd had 15 goes at trying to get oh. pregnant before it actually happened. And you know what? Like
0: what a fucking violation. It's a violation. Well, it's it she was conned. She's a victim of fraud and it's invasive. So that is outrageous. And he's very underhand. Definitely there is a crime committed here, Michelle. If it's not in the books, it needs to be written in. It needs to be legislated. You know, like I said, it's a bit of
1: the Wild West back in the 70s. It's a great area because these women gave all of their trust and all of their consent to the doctor. Okay, yeah. you, choose me, you choose me a good donor. Okay, I'll leave it in your hands, it. doctor. Yeah, he thanks, did. Yeah, thanks, Doc. And he he abused that trust 94 times, you know. And God knows how many more half-siblings are out there unknowingly related to this yes. man. Or how many other women he inseminated unsuccessfully. I mean, we're talking 94 children. But yeah. we've already just heard that that woman was, you know, had artificial insemination 15 times before it worked. Mm-hmm. So, this guy. He's at it. He's fucking at it. Like. Bam, 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 he's on it like a car bonnet.
0: So how did we find, what do we do with that information then once it's been discovered that it's Donald?
1: Well, the documentary goes into sort of a few like dark twists and turns on on the journey into why this man would do this. And Jacoba is the one that is really spearheading it all because she's angry and she feels violated and she wants answers. Hmm. So the documentary does go down a few wormholes. So... There's the fact that for many of the half-siblings, this came as a total surprise, not just to them, but also to their parents, because in the documentary, there is case after case after case of these women who went to Donald Klein, like their insemination appointment with fresh sperm from their husbands.
0: Oh my God, and he didn't use it. He
1: just turfed it. That man. That is like heartbreaking. Do you know what I mean? because and they were saying look there's absolutely no way Donald Klein could be the father because we brought in we brought our own in and he used the sperm from my husband well no lady like no
0: he threw it away you're looking at your children that you think you have produced with your husband mm-hmm. and then realizing that it's not the case at all it's like the postman or the or the milkman that's not good Oh, it's it's heartbreaking psychologically. That's very difficult.
1: Oh, look, and so many of the half siblings in this documentary they're just broken inside from this. They have they feel like they have no identity, but you know, more than that, dude knew exactly what he was fucking doing. Yeah, he knowingly and with deliberate intent threw that sperm away. So, what the actual fuck, and look. Let me just say that Donald Klein at no point in the documentary ever gives Jacoba or any of the children he fathered no apologies and no information about what why, why he did this. And actually they talk about how he's kind of a scary guy who carried a gun to the meeting that um, Jacoba had organised with that first lot of eight half-siblings and he actually denied that he did it. He's like, no, 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 I, I never did that, no, no. Until there was so much evidence against him that he was the fucking father with all of this DNA evidence that finally he was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I I did, I did. But he also, he was threatening them. And you hear this like… With a gun. Well, he had the gun in his pocket, which was very threatening. But he was sort of saying things like, you know… You'll be sorry if you continue this because he's like, if you keep going to the media, because Jacobo was trying to go to the police, trying to go to the media, trying to get some media like traction on this because this is fucking outrageous. And he's like, if you keep going, you're going to destroy my 57-year marriage. I mean,
0: who fucking cares? (gasps) Have a little think of that before you start depositing sperm in Arthur, Martha and everyone in between. That's crazy.
1: (laughs) I know. So I think he's a little unhinged.
0: But yeah, as
1: for his motivations, in many respects, this documentary is quite unsatisfying because no one gets any answers. Spoiler. But um, Jacoba does look into possible motivations as to why he might have done this. And look, Master Race. That's exactly it. I was screaming at the TV.
0: It's because he's a fucking psychopath and he's a Nazi. and (gasps) Narcissist. He wants to be populating the entire world with lots of mini Donalds. Boys from Brazil. I said it again. Well, you know, I'm saying Hitler because it turns out that both of us are actually not too far off the mark. Because Boys from Brazil is lots of mini Hitlers. That's what it is. It's them cloning Hitler a hundred times. Or not a hundred times, like ten times around the world. Okay, well... That's a movie.
1: Yes, this is shades of that because she kept digging around into what was going on and she found out that one of the people in the DA's office who should have followed up on her complaint but never did because she had tried to like file a complaint for medical misconduct. She found out that this DA, this person in the DA's office was associated with a Christian fundamentalist movement called Quiverful, which encourages the, I'm doing air quotes here, faithful, devout followers who are blonde and blue-eyed to have as many children as possible and groom them for power so that they can become ambassadors for God. Of the Aryan Just like fucking Hitler. Aryan, yes, exactly. And look, thing is, we have no evidence that he was part of this. However, if this really was his motivation, he was doing exactly that, creating a master race, one fucking jerk-off into like a test tube at a time, you know, and and impregnating 94 women. You know, it's genetic cleansing for an Aryan race and it's absolutely horrifying. And look, one of the reasons why they think Donald Klein might be part of this, like, fundamentalist cult. Yeah. And I call it a cult because it is a bit culty. It's because of their motto. It says, be fruitful and multiply. And it comes from the book of Genesis in the Bible where the quiverful movement gets its name from. Because in Psalm 127, 3 to 5, it reads... Mm. As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. Basically, go shoot your load. You know. key <laughs> Your sperm's an arrow, go shoot your load. So, look, they're anti-birth control. They're anti-sterilisation. They're anti-abortion. And really fucking, like, fringe religious. So, you know. It's fucking scary. Pro-ethnic cleansing. Mm-hmm. And then also in the documentary, it showed this little tapestry that had been embroidered and it was a psalm. And it hung on Dr. Donald Klein's wall and it okay. said, "Yeah, before I formed you in your mother's womb, I knew you. Ugh. Yeah, which is actually paraphrasing um, – A psalm from the book of Jeremiah in the Bible, chapter 1, verse 5, which actually reads, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee. And I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. So, you know, this dude knew exactly what he was fucking doing. Another scary thing is these 94 people, they all live in the same town. And it's not a big town. So you That's know, not great. Every time a new half sibling pops up on 23 and me, they're all like fuck, do I know them? Did I have sex with them? Have I married? Oh, right. Yeah, cuz not
0: everybody's doing that. No. So, you know, it's it's really scary stuff. That's m- much worse than I thought. Yeah. You haven't just got your 93 people. It's just the ninety-three three we know who have about... tested on twenty-three and me. Oh, this is a disaster! It is, and look, and this—we were just talking about diseases before. Nearly
1: half of all the siblings, including Jacoba, have autoimmune diseases.
0: Oh, Dr.
1: Donald Klein has an autoimmune disease and they do talk about rheumatoid arthritis. So I don't know if it's just that or something else, yeah. but you know, he fucking passed it on. Like what a dick. And if he'd gone through the normal processes, he wouldn't even have been allowed with that kind of autoimmune disease to, yeah. to even donate. So, yeah. you know, it's just really scary, but basically to wrap up, like, you know, what uh-huh. what happened with Donald Klein is that in 2017, after it was proven that he was Jacoba's father, he did plead guilty to two counts of obstruction of justice for previously lying to officials about artificially inseminating patients with his own sperm. But he had a fucking judge who just went, Look, you know, you got no prior criminal history and uh you know, you've 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 never you've never been a threat to anyone. So He didn't even Mm. end up serving jail time and he got away with a $500 fine. That's it. Because under Indiana law, he couldn't be criminally charged with rape or battery and there's actually no law for what he's done. So they can't charge him with a crime. It's just really sick. And look, although Donald is, you know, at the moment, the most prolific US kind of doctor to inseminate patients without their consent wrongfully and using his own sperm he's not alone there are 44 other fertility doctors in america who have also been exposed for doing similar
0: shit so i had a horrible feeling you were going to say that yeah i can't
1: really say this is a great documentary because it's actually not as in depth as you would want it to go because it doesn't look at the deeper issues here of how, you know, in the 70s and that generation who just trusted their doctor, it doesn't look at the arrogance of doctors or things like male entitlement or the scary faith that we put into doctors or religion or white supremacy or reproduction rights or, or any of that stuff. It is really just the story of how this all got exposed. And while that's interesting, for me, there's so much more to this that they didn't really touch on. So you don't need to watch it now because I've just summed up the whole thing. But if you do, just go in knowing that this is more storytelling about what happened rather than, you know, an
0: expose. Nicely wrapped up in a bow, justice being served. Well, that's going to... Sit with me for a bit, Michelle. I'm trying to get my head around yeah, that. absolutely shocking. insane.
1: So, yeah, sorry, guys. <laughs> Michelle's oh. getting
0: cut. Jody had a tear. Ben Mantle slaps round lemonade. To you, that's a cold
1: beer. <laughs> yeah, I'll one, love.
0: Gives you yeah. tinny. Eve's dry. My story isn't very true crimey either. A crime was committed, that's for sure. And a couple of weeks ago, maybe even last week, you said, oh, we need to do some happy stories. Hmm. Well, this isn't necessarily that. Okay, But it is kind of happy. Well, there's some elements. No, actually, it's not that happy. But it's, it's an incredible story of survival. It's been told on other podcasts. But my friend and stroke researcher, Ren, who is leaving to go back to Australia tomorrow, insisted that i do this one so here you go ran this is the story of the sea wave the what the sea wave oh fuck intriguing <laughs> in november 1961 the greek freighter ship captain theo that's the name of the ship not the captain was passing through the northwest providence channel from belgium to texas this strait divides two major islands in the bahamas Second in command, Nikolaos Spakidakis. Now, I'm not sure if I pronounced that correctly. <laughs> Spakidakis. I take it, it's a Greek name. Spakidakis. It honestly sounds like ill fitting trackidakis. Trackidakis. I don't mean to make fun of his name, but unfortunately, I don't know how to pronounce it, but he was on watch. He was on watch anyway. He was watching. He was up in the mast looking and he could see several other ships scattered over the sea plus lots of white capped waves in the ocean. But one of them caught his eye because it wasn't it was static. It wasn't kind of changing like a white capped wave would do. Mm-hmm. He couldn't work it out so, and he thought, well, this is too small for a boat and too large for debris, but it's different from all the other white caps. So he alerted the captain of the ship, not Captain Theo, the ship's called Captain Theo, mm-hmm. to change direction so that they could investigate. As they approached the object, they realized to their complete shock and disbelief... That it was a young girl sitting in a tiny inflatable life raft completely exposed to the elements. What fuck, man? That's your sea wave right there. One of the crewmen took a picture of her looking up from her mini raft. This mini raft is not like a lifeboat, yeah? It's like a little... Do you remember Smurf breaker tubes that you used to get <laughs> in the 80s yeah. for Christmas? Thanks, Mum. And you blow them up, or K-Tel thunder tube. You blow it up and you sit on its little handles on each side and you might catch the odd wave, but they don't last forever. It was made of very thin fabric kind of like PVC or cork or something. This girl, she was sitting on this tiny little bit of scrappy thing, With her feet in the water, (gasps) hair bleached white by the sun. Her face was deeply sunburned. She's squinting up at them in this tiny little piece of plastic or cork or whatever it was in this massive expanse of ocean. And the photo soon was on the front pages around the world with the amazing story of her survival.
1: Did you tell me what year
0: this was? 61. November 61. Okay. It became the focus of a two-page spread in Life magazine and the picture in the magazine was of her sitting on the raft on one side and the other side was just a huge expanse of empty water. Jesus. She's in the middle of the ocean. How terrifying. And also in 1961, Michelle, this is the same year that and in the same magazine it was telling the story about the disappearance of Michael Rockefeller. Did you know about this? No. The son of... uh, governor nelson rockefeller who disappeared so michael disappeared on a canoe exhibition in november so just after this had happened he the same thing happened to him he went missing in 1961 he tried to swim ashore but the villagers and the tribal elders of wherever he went i can't remember the place where it was confessed to killing him but his (gasps) body was never found interesting right that's for another podcast. That really is. Podcast. I mean, I'm intrigued by that too. Jesus Christ. Missing Rockefeller. Look it up. So back to the Captain Theo boat here, this big freighter, Greek freighter. The captain stopped the engines, lowered a small raft overboard and and his concern was that this ship's large lifeboats might hit the child's light little float and knock her overboard. Mm. So they had to quickly lash some empty oil drums together and lowered this makeshift raft over the side. Tensions were rising because the captain noticed that sharks were <gasps> were circling her. They oh, must fuck. have been attracted by all the, all the activity that yeah. was going on in the water. Yeah, exactly. And they were moving closer to her feet, which were hanging over the edge. So they're like, "No, am move on. Come on, guys. We need to get this girl up. They told the girl, don't jump, don't jump. Exactly. A little bit, Melissa Caddick. I I knew you were going to say that. (laughs) So eventually the captain got her up and carried her to a spare cabin, placed her on the bunk. She was in really bad shape, Michelle, possibly moments from death. She was extremely sunburned, dehydrated. She'd been exposed to all the elements for God knows how long. Mm. The Greek soldiers, these tough nuts, were so moved That they were crying at this girl's plight and what she might have endured to get herself in that situation in the first place.
1: And alive. So, alive, you know?
0: Alive, yeah. So they were gently sponging the salt off her, they got her drinking, put Vaseline on her lips and everything, tried to get her to talk, but she was unresponsive and she was just like looking straight through them. She was absolutely, you know, she'd been through God knows what. Captain and crew feared she might not make it so because she, she was drifting in and out of consciousness. Yeah. But this captain was desperate to get the information out because they needed to tell the Coast Guard what had happened. Perhaps there were more survivors, you know. He kept asking her, what's your name? How did you find yourself in the water? I want to report this to the Coast Guard. And if you tell me your name, I can send information to your relatives that you're still alive. But she shook her head and gestured to her thumb which the captain took to mean that she must be the sole survivor of some kind of disaster at sea that had claimed the rest of her family. So he said to her, oh, you can't be sure. You know, they, they might be OK. Another ship might have saved them. But she shook her head again and pointed to the water before getting a single word out. And that word was Bluebell. What? Eventually, the captain learned that this girl was 11 years old. Her name was Terry Jo Dupereau, who had spent 84 hours terrified fighting for survival all alone at sea until she was rescued so he did contact the coast guard and said we've picked up a blonde girl brown eyes from a small white raft suffering exposure and shock name terry joe Dupereau. was on the blue bell Terry oh, Jo survived shit. for four days without water in the sweltering sun and freezing cold nights while balancing herself on this tiny little life float, which was about two and a half feet by five feet. So it's practically a rubber ring designed to be held onto only for a few hours rather than, you know, God knows how long she was in it. Well, 84 hours she was holding onto it for. She's a
1: fucking legend. How do you stay on she that? is. How do you stay alive?
0: Who knows? Well, oh. let, I'll tell you. Let's see. <laughs> the, sto- <laughs> the story of how she came to be rescued in the first place began with her father. Arthur Dupereau, who was a well-respected optometrist, which is like an optician, I believe, from Wisconsin in the United States. He had chartered this luxury yacht, the Bluebell, chartered it from Fort Lauderdale in Florida to the Bahamas for a family holiday. And he brought with him his wife, Jean, and their children, Brian, who's 14, Terry Joe, who's 11, and Renee, who's 7. Also on board with the skipper, and he was a former Marine and World War II veteran, Julian Harvey, and he had brought his new wife, Mary Dean. And in the first five days of their holiday, it just passed without any drama. It was absolutely lovely. Terry Joe remembers spending those days snorkeling, spearfishing, exploring uninhabited islands, having the time of their life. But on the fifth night, Terry Joe woke up to the sounds of screaming and stamping on the deck above her bedroom cabin and normally her little sister Renee would be in the room with her but that night she was upstairs with her brother and her parents on the deck. I don't like this. No it's not good unfortunately trigger warning. Terry Jo went upstairs to see what was going on and saw her mother and brother lying on the floor in a pool of blood. Oh my god. There was no doubt in Terry Jo's mind that they were dead. Oh god. Then she saw Skipper julian harvey walking towards her she asked him what had happened he slapped her in the face and told her to go back down below deck she's confused she's frightened so she just did what she was told and she went down and just lay on her bunk really still freaking out trying to process what the fuck was going on yeah after a while she became aware that harvey's silhouette was in her doorway and he stood there for a long time looking at her with what seemed to be a rifle in his hand
1: oh jesus
0: so she was just like you know holding her breath shrinking against the wall and eventually he turned and made his way back up deck she remained completely frozen with fear until oily water began lapping in
1: oh, into no.
0: her bunk and it was lapping up towards her bed yeah basically. they were sinking so capsized well she ran upstairs found harvey and asked him is the boat sinking and he said yes and at that point he was trying to get the life raft ready so he could make an escape and he handed her this line for her to hold it steady. But because she was just absolutely gobsmacked with everything that had happened, it just slipped through her hands oh. and the the raft kind of floated off. So he realized what was going on. He dives into the sea and left Terry Joe basically to go down with the ship on this bluebell yacht and what she didn't realise at this point was that Harvey Skipper Harvey had already murdered the rest of Terry Joe's family and his wife Mary
1: but he was an ex-Marine who seemed to have good credentials what the fuck was the
0: motivation here I'll tell you Michelle but let's first find out what happened to Terry Jo. Yeah. She wasn't on the on that ship. She didn't go down with it. She remembered that there was a small life float, that little thing I talked about earlier, mm. and it was kept in the main cabin. So she untied it, managed to push it into the water. A few other things happened, which meant she almost went under with the with the boat. But luckily, she eventually got herself on it, turned around, watched that yacht go down. And then that's when she found herself alone in the middle of the ocean with no food no water no protection from the elements wearing totally inappropriate clothing she was wearing pink pedal pushes and a white blouse really thin this must have been the most horrifying and lonely moment of her short life
1: oh no poor terry joe short life she didn't make it well she's 11 she's 11 oh i thought you meant okay I thought
0: you she's meant She's only been alive for eleven years. I thought you meant she didn't live longer than eleven. No, no. I don't know No, this they yet. can't they find her. She survives, okay? That's Okay, spoiler. okay, all right, all right. So that night, I think, or that in those moments after she survived, there was a rainstorm. She was shivering, she's wet, she's freezing, but she's also still trying to figure out what happened to the rest of her family. Like where's her sister, where's her dad? I think maybe she did see a body in the in the water, which the captain had gone off with in his raft so i think she thought that was his wife but let's see the following day her float began to disintegrate and terry had no choice but to hang her legs over the side and then a plane flew past she's waving she's frantically like calling out heartbreakingly though they didn't see her because she was directly underneath them and she's tiny you know she's the same color as the raft she's the same color as the white capped ocean you know it's only pure luck that the original captain found her so she's drifting in the northwest providence channel that i told you about before completely unaware that she was being carried north with the gulf stream she then drifted east before it carried her across the atlantic to the british isles all the while she's praying to be rescued she also Mm. said a prayer of thanks to her companion swimming inside her a pod of porpoises (gasps) who kept her company and gave her hope aka Mermaids. Could have been. Could have been. I mean, it reminds me a little bit of that film and that play. What's it called? Where there's tigers in the boat. What's that called? Oh, I don't know. There's a sea accident and this chap survives with all these animals in his boat, like tigers and dangerous animals in his boat. What's that called?
1: Noah's Ark. Noah's (laughs) Ark.
0: No. I don't know. I'll never remember. But somebody else is yelling at us right now saying, it's the bloody, like he's Indian and... Life of Pi.
1: Yeah, that's it. Oh, I haven't seen it. but That's it. Okay, we got there.
0: Thank you, Michelle. So by day three, Terry Jo was suffering from heat stroke and she was badly sunburned. And on the fourth day, she woke up to see this giant shape in front of her with people shouting, waving their arms, before she finally was lifted to safety. So she did make it, Michelle. But skipper Julian Harvey had also been rescued from the dinghy on the day after the sinking of the bluebell. And he told his rescuers that he was the only survivor of the vessel. Yeah, He's telling this to Miami Coast Guard. And there was a terrible accident. His version of events was that there was a sudden squall that destroyed the yacht and that his wife and the Duperos were injured when the masts and rigging collapsed on them. He also claimed that there were gas lines in the engine room that ruptured, causing the ship to catch fire before sinking, and that he was lucky enough to be able to escape in the dinghy. Do you know what? All very plausible. It's just not true. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. He said his passengers, which was the five-member Dupereau family and his wife, Mary Dean, were either caught in the rigging or jumped overboard as the Bluebell went down. And three days later, he repeated this tale for the Coast Guard investigators in an actual courtroom style or you know boardroom style investigation with extra detail and he told you know how he'd emptied two fire extinguishers into the flame with little effect and once in the dinghy he shouted over and over into the school trying to locate the other passengers and when he did spot little Terry Jo she was floating face down in the water with her life jacket on already dead. So people listening to this testimony weren't quite convinced some of his rescuing crew members thought he was too calm and collected for someone who just lost his wife and an entire family of clients and nearly escaped death. Yeah. It was true that he was a skilled World War II bomber pilot and he'd served in the Korean army in the Korean war. But at the end of his career in the military, even his closest acquaintances noticed how he'd been affected by his time in the army. And he had a facial tick and a stutter and he had Complained of frayed jangling nerves, or he hadn't complained of it. The people had noticed his nerves were shot, basically. Yeah, full PTSD. Another interesting background fact about Skipper Gillian Harvey was that he had been married multiple times, Michelle. Oh, he's a gigolo. <laughs> Mary was his sixth wife and Harvey had a habit of love bombing, marrying and then dumping his partners, usually by telling them, I don't love you anymore. And he was so famous for this at the Elgin Air Force Base in Florida, where he was stationed with his second or possibly third wife, Joan, in 1949. Later, though, things took a dark turn. On a rainy night, Harvey was driving his wife and mother-in-law back from the movies his car swerved on a bridge and rolled over the side into the water, sinking the car with the wife and her mother in it. Oh, God. He miraculously survived. Oh, funny that. Bystanders dove into the water to look for the women, but he was unscathed and calmly told people how he'd been able to escape the car while it was mid-air.
1: Oh, So he didn't bullshit. even go in the water. I call bullshit. <laughs>
0: Evidence did disprove this claim, but it was noted that Harvey had made no attempts to save his wife and mother-in-law, let alone seemed upset at all about their deaths. Shortly after, Michelle, he cashed in his wife's insurance policy. Oh, we knew that was coming, didn't we? We knew. He's loving the life insurance scams. He'd twice filled in insurance claims for destroyed boats and... Even though they seemed suspicious, he was awarded each claim. Hmm. Friends later admitted he probably steered the boat, like the boats that he claimed for previously, into obstacles on purpose. And in the case of the second claim, he had flat out admitted to his friends that he'd set the boat on fire. Oh my God. Not a good guy. Do your research, guys. But by the time he skipped the blue belt, he was in financial trouble again, and he tried the old life insurance policy trick again on his wife, Mary Dean, who at the time was thirty-four. He was forty-four. So it's believed that on the night of her murder, she put up a fight. It's possible that Terry Joe's father witnessed the murder, and that sparked off the Captain Harvey's killing of the rest of the the Dupereau family, right. except for Terry Joe, right. Somehow his past never came back to haunt him, which got him onto the Bluebell in the in the first place. Because mm-hmm. obviously, like you've just said about the seventies, this is the sixties, even more of the Wild West.
1: Yeah.
0: During his testimony, everyone's kind of believing him until a few days later, Terry Joe was rescued, and he's still with the Coast Guard when he heard this news. And he responded by saying, "Oh my God, that's wonderful!" No, oh. inwardly thinking fuck
1: shit gigs up or the jigs up the jig the gig the 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 jig jig is is up up.
0: the jig is up so the day after he discovered that terry joe lived to tell the tale harvey committed suicide in his motel room he'd left a note addressed to his friend a guy called james boozer Mm -hmm. which said i'm a nervous wreck and i just can't continue i'm going out now i guess i either don't like life or i don't know what to do with it he also, in his message, arranged for the adoption of his 13-year-old son. Oh, shit. And for his body to be buried at sea.
1: Guy topped himself.
0: So you're probably wondering what happened to Terry Jo. Yes. Well, after this terrible thing happened to her, she lost all her members of her family in one night. She then went to live with her aunt and her cousins and changed her name to protect her privacy. She didn't talk to the media about the tragedy for over 20 years. She kept a low profile avoiding social gatherings that weren't immediate family. But then eventually, about 20 years later, she released a book called Alone, Orphaned on an Ocean, in an attempt to make some sort of sense about her survival. She felt she was, she was spared for some reason. And if she didn't tell her story, then what was the point of it? Yeah, I get it. I get it. In the years following her rescue, Terry Jo found a love of the ocean and eventually went to work in water resources, regulation and zoning for water. And she told CBS News, I went on to protect the water that had protected me as a little girl. Water is life and it is soothing for me to be on the beach. I find I can think clearly, relax and feel closer to my lost family. And that's from CBS News, that information. Also, her experience caused a change in legislation about boating regulations that's been seen all over the world. It was a recommendation put forward in 1962 to change the colour of lifeboats from white to bright yellow or orange so they can be, so it was actually not bright yellow, but orange, so they can be more easily identified than her silly little white one. Yeah, good fucking move. And the life jackets as
1: well. I mean, come on. It seems so basic, I guess, because we've always had orange, you know, life rafts and vests. But, you know, I see this all the time on on the mountain, that people are skiing in their all white outfits or they've got white and black. And the thing is, if you get caught in an avalanche, you're not going to get seen from the air. You know, you need those bright colours. So, don't fuck with nature, you know, the whole time you're talking about this story. I just oh, I just feel sick that she was so sunburnt because, you know, we grew up in Australia. We know that even the tiniest bit of sunburn can really fuck you up. She, if you yeah. said she's so badly sunburned, I wonder if she's got melanomas. I mean, it's a miracle that she didn't have all her skin completely burned off because I had a friend who told me a story about a friend of her dad's who went fishing. His lips got so badly burnt, he lost his bottom lip gone oh the sun is really really insane so that poor little girl like completely burnt anyway that was amazing story thank you so much
0: it's it's a shocker it's a shocker of a story at least she
1: survived but fuck she lost everything poor little thing i know
0: yeah amazing though that the survival of an 11 year old girl who just somehow she just made it
1: yeah probably because she just She didn't overthink it. She was too young to overthink it. She's just like, I just need to hang
0: on. Yeah, yeah. And thank God that she was spotted. Yeah, Yeah, that's a miracle. Absolute miracle. Brilliant. Well, Michelle, I think we've come to the end of the podcast this week. I hope that you will continue to enjoy your travels through Australia and I will just continue to be here waiting for you to come back.
1: Oh, won't be long. And until then, obviously, you're all going to be haunted by tales of like artificial insemination survival. and survival. But oh, yeah, whatever you do, wherever you are, what? Oh, yeah, I whatever got it wrong. You do,
0: just, just keep, keep eavesdropping. eavesdropping. Eavesdropping, dropping, dropping, dropping keys, dropping, eavesdropping dropping, 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 eaves dropping, dropping all day.